Welcome to Third Fridays, the monthly legal talk show from Lois LLC featuring attorney Christian Cisan. This is the original forum in which real attorneys discuss workers' compensation issues, share their opinions, and engage in colorful conversations. This show showcases diverse perspectives of attorneys handling workers' comp cases, including case law trends, practical litigation strategies, and hot topics. Here's your host, Christian Cisan. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the December 2022 edition of the Third Fridays podcast. We have made it to the end of the year. Uh, I cannot believe that this year has flown by, but I guess I say that every year. Uh, So I have a few guests uh, for us today. Uh, I have uh, two paralegals who will be coming on to talk about a fraud case involving a side business where there is the purchase and uh, resale of exotic snakes. Uh, But that's for the next segment. I'm going to start off today's show in our first segment with uh, Adam Lonestein. He is a senior associate in our office, and he is uh, one of the uh, most efficient and fastest uh, attorneys at closing files via settlement. So I thought it'd be a great way uh, to introduce our topic today. But before I get into that, welcome to the show, Adam. Hi, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, you know, Adam has always been, uh, you know, uh, one of these people that I've like uh, been appreciative of what of what he does and, and how it affects what we do because Adam recently underwent a back surgery and return to work within three weeks. So uh, despite what claimants doctors will tell you, it is possible, right, Adam? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously I would say it depends on the type of work you do, but uh, if it's something that's light duty work, I don't see why someone uh, shouldn't be able to return to work sooner rather than later. Yeah, and it's just, just a little interesting tidbit because I think we sometimes fall into this trap of thinking that a back surgery renders you incapable of ever working ever. But again, that's only what claimants, doctors, and claimants' attorneys will tell you, I guess. Um, anyway, uh, Adam's uh, my guest on the show this month because uh, we want to talk about settlement facts and myths, uh, especially as our, our landscape keeps changing. There are different things that uh, stakeholders stakeholders in our industry believe uh, are either impediments to settlement or things that facilitate settlement. So I, I thought that it'd be a good idea for us to talk through these types of theories and, and prompts to see if uh, what you believe, Adam, helps you for closing files and what you believe stops you from closing files as uh, you know one of the uh, best attorneys at doing so in our office. So you ready for this little game? Yeah, let's play. Sounds good to me. Okay. So I think I'll start off with this one uh, because uh, it was something that I think appears in a lot of your cases, right? And this prompt uh, is cases in early stages of litigation are not ripe for settlement. Is that is that a fact or is that a myth? I think that's a myth and I think that's actually quite the opposite. Uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, one, there's the uncertainty of what's going to happen. So we don't know what way the judge is going to go or what way the litigation is going to go. Um, so I think that's a good time for both sides to kind of take a step back, 
evaluate their case. Don't get buried too deep in the actual litigation. We have to fight this tooth and nail on every little issue. I think if we take a step back and look at the case as a whole and our potential exposure on both sides, um, we can kind of get a better grasp of where we're going to end up and what we're looking to accomplish. Um, it also takes away the time of the drawn out litigation. It saves the carrier's litigation costs. Uh, most claimants councils don't want to go through long, drawn out litigation. So if we can give them an out of that litigation, uh, they're more likely than not going to jump all over it. And it also enables the carriers to save a lot of money, uh, whether it be for future exposure or litigation costs. So I think I think that's absolutely a myth. And I think any time we're in the early stages of litigation, that's a really good time to analyze the claim for settlement. What about the claimant's attorneys in denied claims that's, that, that value it as if the claims are established, right? Uh, what, what has worked for you to reach a resolution in those cases where the employer may have a denial position which would drastically lower the exposure of the case to zero if it w if we would be successful, and a claimant's attorney is valuing it as if the case is already won. What has worked for you uh, in your cases to prove that that's really just a myth, even in the toughest of cases? So I think there's always a middle of the road position, or generally always a middle of the road position. Uh, of course, you have some people on both sides who don't want to give an inch, right? You have the person, the claimant, who no matter what their attorney advises them, they're not taking less than whatever ridiculous dollar figure that we've come across uh, comes out in a demand. Uh, but I think if we can meet in the middle of the road, you know, we analyze the case, uh, we point out to claimant's counsel the validity of our position, and what could possibly happen to their client if we're successful. If we're successful with a denial, their claimant's not getting any money, not getting any medical treatment, not getting anything. So if we can show the strength of our position, obviously without tipping our hats to what's up and you know showing what's up our sleeve, um, but if we can show the strength of our position and show opposing counsel that this should be a case that's settled because of the weaknesses of their position, uh, and I think we should be able to work it out. That's that's a good point. That's a good point. I think that uh, it certainly goes to our process, right? Within you know seven days of a case being referred, we we aim to have a settlement evaluation to our client, and of course, the best ones really take into account the strengths and weaknesses of each side's position. Uh, so I, I definitely agree with you there. Let's let's and go. As a former. As a former claimant's attorney, I will say that uh, any money that's quick and easy is uh, looks good on the table. So a lot of a lot of uh, claimant's attorneys just want that quick attorney fee and to move on. Yeah, I wonder if if I should have included that in your your intro bio, right? Adam had a former life as a claimant's attorney, and maybe that's what contributes to your skill set in getting some of these cases closed sooner rather than later. Would you agree? I think so, just because I can kind of have a better feel and step in the mindset, so to speak, of a claimant's attorney and what a claimant's thinking, because I've 
dealt with them for so long and had so many conversations with claimants from that perspective. Right. So I like to, I like to think that uh, knowing what they're looking for helps to have, meet that middle ground. Right. Okay. Let's let's move on to the next one. Uh, I like this one here. Um, appeals can be used for settlement leverage. Is that a fact or a myth? Okay, so that one I think is two part. It's part fact, part myth. So I think at the and I'll explain why. I, I know you're probably saying you, you can't you can't go half in. Um, <laughs> so at the initial appeal level, I think it absolutely can be used for leverage. Um, as carriers know, when there's an appeal pending on whether it's an establishment of the claim or awards or whatever the issue is, uh, we can suspend benefits or we can withhold that for the time being while that appeal is pending. So if we have an appeal looming or uh, pending, the claimant's not receiving any benefits potentially, and that can absolutely be used for leverage. We can turn around and say, hey, one, we can win this appeal, and two, and your client gets nothing, or two, even if we lose, we still have this time that we're waiting for the appeal to be decided. So uh, why not have your client take some money now and close out the claim and settle it? All right, so that's for the initial appeal level. Um, as far as, and I know some carriers do think this at times, um, if they're not experienced in this, uh, that appeals at the higher levels to the third departments, to the appellate division, uh, those appeals do not hold as much leverage. So that's where that would be a myth uh, because the law of the case is the law of the case while that appeal is pending. So any benefits that are directed are still being paid for the to the claimant. So they really don't have as much to lose while that appeal is pending and they're they're still receiving their their checks and their money so they're not worried about I'm not having a check unless I settle this case. Yeah, I I think uh I more or less agree with you there. I think especially with that, you know, we take a look at that first part of your answer right at the initial administrative level to the board panel. We have the opportunity to dictate you know, what benefits are being provided to the claimant during the pendency of the appeal. I think that a lot of employers and carriers sometimes look too much to the chance of success that an appeal will win or lose. And that is certainly very valuable. I do not want to disregard that. But I do think that if you have a settlement goal for a particular claim, we may not want to withhold an appeal or refrain from filing an appeal just because we think that there's only a 50-50 shot that we're winning. Because if we look at the cost benefit of that process, if you gain a settlement during the pendency of the appeal, the cost matters less and less. And if we look at cost in and of itself, the real cost are the expenses it takes to file the appeal and the costs or the, the revenue gained, I guess the bottom line gained by not having to pay the claimant while the appeal is pending in certain issues. Now, to your point about the, uh, you know, the board panel decision and being the law of the case, that's de- absolutely true. Once that board panel decision comes out, we can't withhold benefits anymore if, if we lose at that level. I do think that there's maybe a corollary to it that if the case is worth 
you know, in six figure territory, right? We're getting to that level of exposure after a board panel decision. I don't believe the costs are that prohibitive for us to go to the appellate division if we have a good argument and a reversal by the appellate division gets us back to zero. So it 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 kind of it kind of has this give and take thing which I which I like because you really have to look at a case for what it is and not just take a stance across the board. Does that does that make sense or, or, or uh, yeah, I absolutely agree. And and to your second part of that, you took the words right out of my mouth, uh, not verbatim, but uh, I would agree to the extent that, you know, we come across these cases where uh, an appeal to the third department, that's our last chance, right? So we have a case where we know what the exposure is going to be at that point. And, you know, if that's our last chance, we got to, you know, there's times where we got to take it and we got to see, because if we can get that exposure down and, you know, that last bite of the apple, sometimes you have to take it. And the cost benefit analysis, like you said, it's absolutely worth it to take it that extra step. Cool. Okay. So two down. Uh, I think we have three more for our audience. Uh, Maybe we go with this one. Claimants use non-schedule body parts and non-schedule conditions to increase the exposure of a claim or the value of a settlement. Is that a fact or a myth? That one's going to absolutely be a fact. Uh, So as we're all aware, most of us are aware, um, cases have, to the extremities, have schedule losses of use. So they have kind of a finite value as to what that schedule loss of use uh, opinion is. Non-schedule sites, necks, backs, brain injuries, internal injuries, um, any site that be classified with a permanent disability uh, and then loss of wage earning capacity, those also have a finite value, but those have a much higher finite value and also have the potential to not have a finite value if you have a permanent total disability type of case. Um, so if you have a case where there's mixed body parts of non-schedulable sites and uh, schedulable sites, uh, if I'm claimant's attorney and this claimant you know, had, does have significant injuries to the non-schedulable sites, uh, I'm going to look to have the claimant stay out of work, right? So the claimant's attorney is going to say, hey, your doctor's saying you're at MMI for your shoulder, but if you can stay out of work a little longer and milk this back injury or milk this neck injury, right, you're going to get classified with a, a permanent partial disability. And whereas if it's a case where, let's say, for example, a left shoulder based on prior payments and the carrier taking credit is going to move $10,000. We know that the minimum classification for a neck or a back injury, even at the very bare minimum, is $33,750. So you're right off the bat, that's at least another $20,000 in payments of awards at the minimum. Yeah. So, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was sorry. You got. So you got me something I'm passionate about. So <laughs> these claimants that throw in these CRPS claims and these 
RSD claims and all, all these other additional injuries to try to get that classification out of it is just a way of adding increased exposure and a higher sediment value. So go ahead. <laughs> no, I, it's funny. And I guess I, I, I wanted to interject mostly because I just thought of this idea. And I know the listeners probably won't believe this because like, oh, Christian and Adam definitely talked about this before the, they recorded. And yes, that's true, obviously. Uh, but I did just think of this one because it actually parlays back to the first one we talked about where you mentioned that cases in early stages of litigation are ripe for settlement, right? Like you can settle cases early on. And that's actually beneficial because part of the way that this goes is when you say that you have a schedule case and the value is more fixed, if we get to that fixed number, you sometimes worry about claimants then saying, oh, but what about this consequential back injury or, uh, you know, I have consequential PTSD or major depressive disorder that makes it a non-schedule case, it becomes this issue where if you have an accepted claim for a knee, a shoulder, an elbow, a foot, those types of cases, you might be able to make the determination, you know, how do I feel about this employee? How do I feel about this claimant? Do we think that this is the type of case that is going to remain open in a year because of any particular reason, whether that's personal, medical, or uh, indemnity, right? Can we get to a point where we think about a ankle case and say, well, if we can close it on an ankle case today, isn't that better than offsetting the risk of the CRPS diagnosis that you mentioned or the, the, the psychiatric diagnosis uh, diagnoses that I that I'm pausing, right? It's almost a corollary back to this first uh, fact slash myth that we talked about, where if you can understand the exposure that's at risk for the future, you might have the ability to push yourself and say, "Let's settle this now." Absolutely, then there's less time for an increase in medical exposure, and there's less time for the, the gamesmanship of let's add these sites in. And even if you have a, you know, a schedule, let's say you have a shoulder injury, we all know that there's these people, you know, certain people that uh, all of a sudden say, oh, my other arm hurts because I was overusing that one while it was hurt. So the consequential claims can be saved. And I think that's also another driving factor too uh, with the non-schedulable sites uh, to increase exposure. All right, great. So I think the I, next... I got, I got one for you, actually. Oh, you got um, one for me. Okay. Yeah. Test the uh, tester. <laughs> so this has been a pretty hot topic, and a lot of clients have been asking me about it. And I know we tend to go back and forth with our adversaries on it, too. Uh, whether or not an MSA is required for a settlement. Oh, okay. So... I, I love this topic uh, because it's got so many avenues for positions. Uh, you know, we talk about compliance or um, we talk about uh, potential reimbursement or penalties. And if we look at the actual requirement, there is no requirement that a Medicare set aside is needed 
for a full and final workers' compensation settlement. So I would say it's a myth because the real requirement is to consider Medicare's interest. It doesn't say that you need a Medicare set-aside. And so I think people get confused by the fact that there are CMS review thresholds. CMS being the Center for Medica- Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, they review Medicare set-asides based on certain thresholds. So, for example, if the claimant is a current Medicare beneficiary, they will want to review NAMSA if it's over $25,000 or $25,000 and over. So if you have a $24,000 settlement with a Medicare beneficiary, I think most people think that you don't need a Medicare set aside. But in reality, you don't need a Medicare set aside if that same case involved a settlement for $30,000, as long as your settlement considers Medicare's interests. And so I think that's where people may be getting confused in in terms of what is required. Because if your settlement is $30,000 and you have an MSA and you submit it to CMS, that means that CMS will review it. It doesn't mean that it's actually required for your settlement. Now take the other threshold, the $250,000 threshold. That threshold is a review threshold from CMS if the claimant has a reasonable expectation of becoming eligible for Medicare within 30 months of the settlement becoming approved. So almost your non-Medicare beneficiaries, but soon to become Medicare beneficiaries, those types of claims have a higher threshold. And so I do think that when we reach that limit, some claimants attorneys sometimes think that we now need an MSA that has to be approved by CMS. And the real answer to that question is no, we don't need that. What we say is that you have to consider Medicare's interests. And a Medicare set-aside can do that. So if a carrier or employer wants to procure a Medicare set-aside because it's clean, it's fancy, it's got these line items, it tells you exactly what you need, you can annuitize it, that's great. That is, that is a choice that employers and carriers can make. It's a choice that claimants can make, but it's not actually required. Sometimes I think about the cases that uh, have a 2017 date of accident, so five years ago, and there's no medical treatment. You do not need a Medicare set-aside to prove that this person doesn't need treatment. If you haven't sought treatment for five years, why do we have to allocate future treatment for you instead of saying, that your future treatment is zero. There's enough facts in that pattern to basically put us on par with what is actually required, which is to consider Medicare's interests. Glad you asked that question because now I need to take a sip of water after that mouthful. (laughs) While you do that, I'll just chime in. Um, And I think most people don't realize that it's only a recommended process. It's not a mandatory process. And... A lot of people hear the thresholds and think that that makes it mandatory. That's not mandatory for the MSA. That's what CMS requires for their review of an MSA. It's not MSA a requirement. Um, And the other thing is that sometimes attorneys will say, you know, 
I want X amount of dollars for indemnity plus a Medicare set aside as my settlement. And and that's even when someone's not even a Medicare beneficiary. That and I, it, you know, and that's saying, oh, I want to protect the medical. And I think that's just opposing counsel's way of squeezing the carrier for more money. Right. They know that the indemnity has a certain value, and they want to squeeze more money and try to get uh, a vendor to pad this possible medical exposure in the future just so they can add more value to their settlement. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's a good point because it doesn't prevent a non-Medicare recipient from saying, I want an MSA. And there is a settlement strategy to it because let's say you have a client whose internal compliance protocol says, I will get an MSA when these things occur. Well, if they don't occur, then we can use that to our advantage as well and say that our client is not getting an MSA for this case because CMS won't even review it or it's not necessary because there's no future treatment conceded by even the claimant's doctor, right? When the claimant's doctor pursues a permanency report and says he only needs palliative treatment, he doesn't need any future surgeries, He's ready for his schedule loss of use award. Well, why should there be a future expectation of medical treatment to be payable by us? It's like an interesting dichotomy where for permanency, you get your schedule loss of use report as your money report, and then you get another money opportunity for future medical. It's, it's, a, it's a very interesting balance that I think claimants try to use against us. Uh, so it's good to know that, that our firm is stocked with people like you, Adam, to really push that or, or push back on that. Yeah, and I think to that point also, our clients should be aware that, and carriers and TPAs, um, you know, you don't have to take that first vendor report at face value for what it is. You know, there's always an opportunity to mitigate that estimated exposure. Um, t- I would take a look at it line by line, see what the cost drivers are and see if, you know, we can get updates from the doctors on whether that's actually something that's still needed or still being considered or something that's either or maybe already been done or right. not even on, on medication anymore and there's no plan to prescribe it in the future. So. I, there's always that mitigation factor that we can use to uh, lower those MSAs as well. Great point. And I think that brings us to our last one. Now, the way I worded this, I could see it being a jumble. So like, I, I totally get it if it, it doesn't <laughs> ring a bell for you. But the way I worded it is a little bit confusing, just as a heads up. Risk transfer opportunities should temper litigation opportunities in favor of a claim's bottom line. I guess before you even answer, does that prompt make sense? Like, can, do, you, do you know what I'm what where I'm going with that to, to answer it? Yeah, and I, I okay, I think I know where you're getting at, and I, if if I'm wrong, you can uh, let me know. Uh, but it's basically that opportunities for risk transfer. So whether it's loss transfer or third-party action, uh, those change the bottom line to the carrier of what their overall payout's gonna be, uh, which then in turn opens opportunities for settlements. Yeah, so, the yeah. Way I, the, so I think it's a fact if that's the way it is. 
Um, and I think looking at third-party actions uh, and loss transfer opportunities is always something you should do because if you can recover money in that way, then that $150,000 or $200,000 demand from our adversary is now reduced by whatever you're going to get back on the back end, in theory, out of a, either a loss transfer or a third-party action. So with, or both. You know, just, yeah, we're both, too. So with respect to loss transfer, if anyone's unfamiliar with that, um, that is you can recover from the it's a motor vehicle accident you can recover from the insurance carrier of the other vehicle um, there are certain requirements the vehicle's unladen weight so without any boxes or trailers or anything has to be 6500 pounds or greater um, or if it's like a livery service cab service or something like that uh, you can recover up to fifty thousand uh, dollars from the carrier's initial payout uh, to their bottom line. So now you're automatically carving out and getting back $50,000. So if you have a $150,000 settlement demand, you can potentially view it as a hundred thousand. If you're taking into consideration, you know, what you're going to get back. Uh, and then same thing with third party actions. Uh, if you're going to recover from a claimant's third party action, you know, if you know that if you know a third party action is going to be worth a million dollars, and there's a $250,000 demand, you know you're going to be get, getting some of that back, at least. You know, it's a different story if the third-party action is only worth, you know, $25,000, then you're really not getting much back. But if it's if you know there's some value to the third party, you can absolutely uh, get that money back, at least part in part. Um, and that's going to help your bottom line. So go back to your tie back to your original question about the bottom line and these risk transfers helping out settlement. Yeah, I think you actually raised a, a new point there with if your third party case has little value, because that will probably give us a sign that once that money is exhausted, the claimant only has us to come back to for exposure. So knowing that from the get go should direct us to, again, go back to the early stages of litigation and try to settle those cases, because the claimant is going to be motivated to keep the workers' compensation claim open if the third-party case has little value. I also wanted to reference the fact that when you have these big third-party cases and you have these loss transfer opportunities, it really doesn't make sense to litigate, you know, for example, physical therapy, right? If there's a denial of physical therapy or six weeks of chiropractic care, and you know that there's a big third-party case in the background where you're going to be getting a reimbursement, the more that you fight those minor issues, the less of that money you're going to get back because you're going to be expending different uh, costs in legal, right? Like in uh, eventual payment of costs if litigation is unsuccessful. My thought is always... Well, if we know we have this thing in the background, that should really drive our closure pattern and our our, our litigation uh, desires because we want to make sure that it's truly valuable given the context of a third-party case. Yeah, it's a great point. If you know it's looming out there and you're going to get a possible recovery, 
uh, know when to pick your battles, right? Like you said, because you're going to drive legal, legal costs over something that's not worth it in the recovery end. Yeah, I think that's a great place to stop because, you know, we, we just want to generate a better bottom line. And uh, I think a lot of these prompts really go to negotiation strategy and what goes into them. And I know that a lot of our clients really sometimes want that uh, input and they want to see, you know, what goes into negotiating a good settlement. So I think that gives them a good, uh, you know, place to start if they're looking for that good context. Uh, Adam, uh, I want to thank you for being on the show. I think that uh, it's been a great demonstration of your prowess here in closing files for, for Lois. Uh, and uh, maybe in the future, we'll have more prompts to, to throw your way because, uh, you know, we know that the law is going to change every year anyway. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And I'm always happy to talk settlement, as you know. Um, so I'd like closing files as fast as I can. Um, I will keep them in generalities, though, because I don't want to give away too many of my secrets because uh, <laughs> I won't be able to settle as much. But I appreciate it. And it was nice talking with you. Yes. We'll be right back with the Paralegal Minute. All right, we're back uh, with a third Friday's podcast. My thanks to Adam Lowenstein, who uh, helped us with the first segment of this month's episode. We talked about settlement facts and myths. I actually feel like you guys could have done that too, right? I could actually quiz you guys right now, but I, I wouldn't because that would just oh, be... please don't do that to me. Yeah, <laughs> that would just... It's like 8.30 yeah. in the morning. It's 8.30 in the morning. Unnecessary, right? <laughs> uh, so we'll get into... Uh, the paralegal minute by talking about an update from a prior episode. And so I want to welcome back to the show, Melissa Gannon and Uma Mystery. Welcome back, guys. Thank you. Thank you for having us again. So I think it wasn't my intention to provide like an update on uh, a past case, but uh, this case kind of became more exciting, if you will. It became very juicy. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And so let's recap for everybody what we talked about uh, in June. So that's like six months ago. This year has gone by so fast. Absolutely. And uh, we had a situation where we reviewed an intake form from an IME. Yes. That discovered what? Discovered that this claimant was working when he told us he wasn't working. Um, turns out he was working at the reptile deli. And let's just stop there, right? Because like we see that sometimes, right? Sometimes claimants lie about their work status and mm -hmm. we go through the process. But I almost wanted to stop just because we said the words reptile deli. Why would somebody lie about working at a reptile deli? Right. Is that that is seems that... too specific. Or that's like something you want to tell people, right? Like right. I've never heard of the phrase reptile deli until mm -hmm. this case. And I feel like I if that's a know thing, they existed. yeah, I, I want to know more about that. So, okay, so Reptile Deli yes. is written on this form. Mm -hmm. What do we do after that? So we subpoena Reptile Deli. We, right, because Reptile Deli is a thing. Right, right. Just to see, you know, what what they can provide us. Um, and it once we receive those records, and and when we found out that he was working, it starts to raise a bunch of red flags. That of things that don't make sense, and we start 
getting surveillance. We start doing social media checks, stuff like that. And so we eventually get to the point of raising fraud. Yes. Right? What is our what is our theory? Like what is the fraudulent act that this particular claimant has committed or so we believe in in June prior to June when we're raising it. What are we saying? We're basically saying that he never disclosed that he was working at he was basically part of a prior business years prior and that he was still a part of it whether or not it was making money or he was claiming it on his taxes he was part of this business and he never disclosed it from the beginning right and um if we kind of explain that even further to our listeners right your ability to work or your your work status affects so many different things that we tell doctors right because if you go in and say to your doctor i can't work i'm not working what are they going to believe that that you are working they're not just going to have that investigative mind right. that we have where they're going to uh, you know start recommending treatment to get you back to work mm-hmm. right they're going to start uh finding you disabled because you're complaining about these inabilities to do work mm-hmm. and so it's this misrepresentation of what you can do to your doctors that affects you know what treatment we're paying for on the employer or carrier side and also uh, how much money we're paying you because you can't work, right? He, right. he was getting some checks uh, for being out of work. So we have this situation uh, in June where we brought it to our listeners and said, this is a, a crazy scenario. After June, you know, we're now six months, as we said, like what happened after that that podcast like what what has since happened from june so after we had the podcast there was another hearing mm-hmm. that you said that was going to be coming up quite soon and i think that was was sometime in july and that's when the claimant actually testified mm-hmm. on everything and i think he kind of got the bad end of the stick <laughs> kind of, kind <laughs> of outed himself, himself in a deeper hole right it's, it's funny because i would almost under normal circumstances, I'd be saying, oh, like, Uma, don't give away the plot. But obviously, since we're talking about it again, we're not going to talk about a case that we lost. Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So we're not really giving away uh, the keys to the castle here. So he dug himself into a hole, you said. Mm-hmm. What what types of things did he testify to that helped our position, you think? He basically testified that, you know, he kept putting in the point that this was a hobby and you know whatever but he he also testified that he goes to these conventions for the business he's educating people about you know what they do and how they you know breed all these reptiles and he testifies that he has a joint bank account with one of the other owners of the business right i feel like that is a very important part of this that he oh has a joint bank account and also, at some point, he does say that he was, like, the main contact for the company as well. He was, like, the kind of the face of the company. Yeah. He would go to these conventions, and he was telling people he's wearing shirts, he's, he's standing under, you know. Well, I hope he's wearing shirts. He's shirtless. He's wearing shirts with the, the company name. Yeah. 
Uh, he's, 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 he's promoting the company. Right. He's demonstrating, you know, what these snakes can do for your yeah. life. Mm-hmm. Um, how did he also talk about how many snakes were in his house? Yes, right? he was housing snakes. Um, he was just holding them, but he was holding like. 500 to 600 snakes. 500 snakes. Yeah. Now yeah. imagine they're like even the smallest snakes that you can imagine. 500 of those yeah. is not, you know. That's a lot of snakes in one house. Well, because I'm thinking, I'm thinking myself, even if it is a hobby, which I could get into, you know, whether or not that's still fraud, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you have a hobby that enlists your ability to work, mm-hmm. right, then that's still fraud. But hey, you know. Fine, you can make that argument. If you have 500 snakes, are you just doing it for fun? Yeah. There's there's got to be a good amount of work that you're putting into taking care of those snakes, feeding those I, snakes, all that. If you I have 500 th- of anything, yeah, yeah. That, is, that is more than a hobby to me. Unless it's like... Because even clothes, right? Like, do, does anybody have 500 shirts? Well, maybe you. Maybe. But. Oh, there we go. There's the comic relief that you said you'd gonna come Mr. on the Three show. Mr. Three Piece Suits. Oh, Christian. <laughs> maybe I do. Okay. You probably do. Okay. I really. We walk. don't have to come back on I another walk. podcast to talk about how many shirts you have. I walked into that one just uh, blindly, and uh, I, I accept. Accepted. I, I don't have five hundred shirts, but I get. I get the context. Okay. <laughs> so he has the five hundred shirts. You you made the the point that Uma that having the the bank account was a big part of yeah. it. Why Why do you think so? Um, I think. Later on, he talks about what well, we were just talking about, like caring for the snakes, and it's a hobby. But he pays for all of the caretaking, like all the food and everything. So it doesn't make sense for him to go to his friend and only have have him have the bank account. If they have a joint bank account and he's paying for those snakes, he's somewhat pretty much involved in that company regularly. Especially oh, that's if actually, those okay. snakes are in his house, like. That's a good point, right? Because uh, he has a certain amount of responsibility, right? Since he's housing the snakes and caring for them, and he's paying for them too with that joint bank account. I'm assuming I don't have to pay any of the 500 shirts to live, right? Right, like they they don't need food. Uh, I also don't need to create a joint bank account for to your pay for those shirts, shirts mm. right? Specifically for those shirts. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I think that's interesting too, because if you're going to create a joint bank account, he's, his position about the bank account was what, like what, like how did he try to refute the, the purpose of the joint bank account? I think he said there was something going on with the, the friend that he was sharing the bank account with and that he was trying to help his friend out. Like, yes, so so that mm. when you have the joint bank account, it's mostly from a monitoring or like a, you know, just a, it's superficial, right? Like, yeah. I, you don't, I don't right. have this thing. Mm-hmm. But it's this is an argument that fails every single time because you don't need your name to be on the bank account mm-hmm. to benefit your friend. Mm-hmm. You don't need, like, you don't need to... Have your name on the bank account so that your friend manages the account, right? right. Mm-hmm. Like, you could be a friend. Like, you guys have bank accounts, 
And if I wanted to say, hey, Uma Melissa, I think you could do this, right? I don't need to be on your bank account to tell you that. I will tell you right now. Even if we did have a joint bank account, I'm not housing 500 snakes for you. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I can't do that. I'm leaving. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. The friendship is now like diverted into something. Draw the line at 500 snakes. What about 400? (laughs) You guys are basically admitting that this claimant and his friend have a better friendship Uh, than you guys. When it comes to snakes, I don't know about that one. I'll cry about this later. (laughs) Right. Okay. So the bank account, the... Uh, conventions, right? The the uniform, so to speak, the T-shirt, and he he kind he kind of walks himself into this path, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. What other bits of testimony did we see at trial that supported our position or maybe hurt our position? Anything that you thought was interesting? He brought two witnesses in. Mm-hmm. He brought two people who also worked at the business or had some sort of involvement with this business. And they they didn't help him at all. They kind of just <laughs> they, they, they kind of made it worse because they confirmed that he had he had a pretty significant role in this business. They talked a lot about how much like education he did yeah. with like the company, and they both sta- testified that he was like a hundred percent the owner at one point too. I believe he had a situation where. He was going to go for the home run no matter what happened. Mm-hmm. Where he feels like so connected to this business as not being fraud. It's almost as if he is bringing on these character witnesses as if it's like a criminal trial. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, it kind of is. Because if you get uh, found to have committed fraud, you're actually liable for the fraud inspector general of the state of new york to analyze your situation and determine if criminal prosecution is possible Mm -hmm. but he knew that this occurred right yeah and so did his mindset ever think you know what i'm i might lose here because why not come to us and say can we settle I really think he should have settled this instead of bringing those two witnesses. I think that was a nail in the coffin. He, he for him. did come to settle with us, but at that point we were so far into this and we were waiting for this decision that no matter what, we weren't going to do anything until we found out what. Sure, and that's made. that's that's the thing that I think hurts them the most mm-hmm. is when the claimant side comes to us to settle as as an option. After all the work has been done to produce the result, you're not really doing something for us that's giving us an incentive. It's kind of after the fact at that point. Right. Like, and then here we have, uh, you know, this situation where the claimant's going to go for it. And you guys talk about the types of testimony that hurt the claimant. We had one witness for the claimant that admitted that the bank account was used to place food orders mm-hmm. where the claimant partook in the food. Right, yeah. So whether or not the business made a profit is now all of a sudden 
juxtaposed with this situation where the revenue from selling snakes is used for a benefit, mm-hmm. right? So it's like if you choose to use that for something else, the food that you consume is your potential profit. Right. right. And it, it was very interesting to, to see that, right? Another point was the witness said that she pays the claimant money to offset snake costs. Yeah, yeah. she was paying him to, I believe, like the energy bill or like, I guess... You know, there's something in the snake habitat <laughs> right. that requires a lot of. They got a, they're cold blooded animals. Yeah. So they need like that heat lamp. Thing, yeah. The red yeah. one. 500 like, heat lamps. It's like greenhouse of 500 <laughs> snakes. Exactly. Right? That, that probably does cost a pretty penny for like electricity because yeah. they need a certain like warm environment. Right. That much I know about snakes. So again, like you're converting money in from what could be dollars into mm. something mm-hmm. that's still a benefit for you. Right. And yeah. I think the last, I mean, we get to this reserve decision, right? And I don't know how you guys felt, but when I saw this reserve decision, the first thing I saw was that it was six pages. Oh, Six yeah. pages. And that's when you know the judge is going in. The yes. judge wrote a novel and it was a masterpiece. She yeah. told a story. She put the whole section 114A case law in there. Right. And, and she cited doc ID. She was beautiful. It's the <laughs> it's the type of situation where you you look at it from the perspective of hey, I know that there are cases that aren't frauds, right? Mm-hmm. But this one strikes at me as a judge. Like if, if I'm writing it six pages, this is the time I'm going to write my manifesto mm-hmm. about how this happened. And I think it was so interesting just to know that it was six pages. I think it was funny that she mentioned that I'm not going to give credit to these tax returns that he filed after testimony. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I guess the claimant realizes... Oh no. Mm-hmm. Right? Like you said, Melissa, like the, my friends that came in to testify didn't help me. Yeah. Yep. So now I'm going to show these tax returns. And she says, they are not signed by the claimant and his spouse, nor are they certified. Additionally, these returns do not show if they were submitted to the IRS. Moreover, the returns were submitted by the claimant after he testified. Yeah. yeah. And as such, will be given little weight. And mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's this, 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 you know, oh no, I, I, I screwed up. Let me try to fix it. Yep. That actually furthers your, your, your guilt almost. Yeah. I don't think that helped at all because also when it comes down to the YouTube video mm-hmm. as well, you couldn't even like watch it because there was like restrictions on it. They privated the videos that yeah. showed him. At the conventions with the company shirts and, and educating people. But it, it at that point, it didn't even matter because right. they had testified for him that, yeah, he was there doing that. So right. it didn't matter if we had the right. videos or not. What about the math problem that the judge does on the, on the end of page three where she goes to say, hold on a second. There were a thousand snakes mm-hmm. before it was moved to the claimant's house. Right. And then... She says, but wait a minute, the claimant testified that he now has 500 snakes. 
So what happened to the other 500? As long as you're not out in the wild. (laughs) And then she says, the witness said, hey, none of those snakes went missing, right? Mm -hmm. So therefore, the witness had to come to the conclusion that the other 500 snakes were sold. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So you start to put these things together when you say, how much can a snake be sold for? Well, minimum is probably $20, but some went for $1,000, $2,000, $5,000. These witnesses answered all the questions that they really, that really hurt the claimant in general. Right, right. It's, it's really... From the equation to the YouTube video and... I guess, thank you for the witnesses. Right, right. And just helps <laughs> our case. Thank you for the help. Thank you for the help. <laughs> And so, Uma, you mentioned that the, the judge went in on, on the, the case law to talk about, you know, how the how she's going to come to her conclusion, right? Mm-hmm. Which is another signal, too, because if we're not going to win on fraud, the judge doesn't need to do that. The right. judge can just say, I don't find a violation of fraud. Right. Even when they do find a violation of fraud, I feel like I, I've never seen, like, the full case law just cited in there. Yeah. And... Then she did a whole other paragraph about why it was violated, and then in the actual decision part, like the summary of findings, stated it again. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was more interested actually in the, the part that we actually do to make our fraud position. Like, we talk about when fraud occurs, we connect it to medical reports, mm-hmm. and what, what, right? That's how we start off saying. So she goes in talk about different times the claimant reports uh, his work status or his inability to work. Right, right. And, and she she's, dates as well. Right. So she cites in April of 2021 that the this, this doctor, his own doctor, said the claimant was only able to attend two physical therapy sessions currently due to schedule conflict. And then she adds her own parenthetical reference it is noted that this is the time the claimant had taken the snakes into his home per claimant testimony. So it, this is the conclusion that we make, right, mm-hmm. as legal professionals to our clients to say you now have a fraud case mm-hmm. because we're connecting the dots here. I don't very much expect the judges to to make this analysis on their own. And it's, so it's another thing it tells me the judge is like, okay. Like, I'm, I'm... She became a detective on this. There's no better detective than a workers' compensation judge at this point. That's <laughs> right. With all the information that was given from the testimony and, um, like, the reptile deli, the tax returns, the lack of YouTube video, like, it painted the perfect picture for her just to connect all the dots. Yeah. Right. And then at the end of page five, right, we ha- she, she talks about the violation. She says, mm-hmm. the claimant would have us believe. And I, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that sentence, <laughs> you know, it's getting good. The mm-hmm. claimant would have us believe that having 500 snakes in his home was merely a hobby when the company made hundreds, hundreds. of snake sales. And we have this situation that results in a mandatory penalty. Mm-hmm. The full discretionary penalty, mm-hmm. it's over. It's over. And now we have this glorious decision that, that 
that really puts into place like the amount of work, Melissa, that you and uh, your attorney did uh, to really push this across. So uh, we have to, you know, also give credit to the attorney who's not here with us today, Daniel Gillis, yes. right? Yes. Uh, you yes. know, he it's definitely worked hard with you, Melissa, on trying to get this result. Any, any final thoughts? You know, we, we, we started six months ago with this reptile deli, and now we have a fraud finding. Any final thoughts that we have? I just never would have believed that his demise came from working at a reptile deli. I think that's the cherry on top. <laughs> right. Like, he, he, we never would have found out about these... Like snake. And that you actually identified it as Reptile Deli. <laughs> I think we had previously known that this guy has like a certain hobby of mm -hmm. snakes and stuff like that. So it wasn't the most surprising thing. At least to us, it wasn't like super surprising, but it was something that was like, well, that's weird. Yeah. So let's investigate it this just further. Got more and, more weird. and it just snowballed into something larger to ending up here at a fraud finding. Right. And it, it does make me think, if he had disclosed this from the very start, mm -hmm. we might not have a case. Right. Because he would be the honest person who's talking about his ability to work, what he's doing. Mm -hmm. and It would have made it more believable if it was a hobby either way. Correct. Because if it wasn't yeah. 500 snakes. If it was right. 500 snakes. But even if, hey, even if it is a hobby, it doesn't mean that it's not fraudulent. Because you're right. not reporting that. Like, you, you can't attend your physical therapy sessions, like the judge said, because of a schedule conflict. But you're not telling the doctor why you can't go to physical therapy. And if you said that, like, if you said this is what I'm doing, mm -hmm. I truly wonder what outcome we would have had. Mm -hmm. Right. So, hey, you know, we're, we are where we are, and uh, we're happy that we could get a good result uh, for, for our client here. Uh, so uh, for Melissa Gannon and Uma Mystery, and again, thanks to Adam Lowenstein, this is Christian Cisan reminding you to defend from day one.